This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. Spreading freedom across the nation. This is The Buck Sexton Show. Team Buck, welcome to the Freedom Hut. Thank you so much for being here. Great to have you as always. I figured we would start it off today with a Buck Brief. You are entering the Blaze Threat Ops Center. This is a secure space. All outside comms are down. Prepare to receive the Buck Brief. I know it's been lost in much of the headlines right now because there are Trump tweets to discuss or there are uh, media battles back and forth that everyone's very focused on. But there are two very real battles happening, two cities that are currently in a state of uh, of siege that haven't been getting nearly enough attention. And it's interesting that President Obama spoke yesterday about his counterterrorism legacy, essentially just going on record to explain to everybody why he's been doing all of the right things, why his decision-making processes when it comes to national security have been so sound. And yet we have two uh, situations that are, but one I think is uh, just deeply negative, although complicated, and the other is stalled. Let's start with uh, the first, the, the first situation, the first city, Aleppo. The Syrian government's forces uh, have managed to push into the old city of Aleppo. Now, Aleppo has been the heart of the anti-Assad resistance, um, and the Syrian government's troops and allied militia are poised to completely seize uh, what had been. I mean, Homs was the sort of birthplace of the Syrian revolution. But Aleppo was the most important city, the most populous city, and it looks like it is uh, falling, uh, falling into Assad regime hands. Uh, Now, the Assad regime has gotten a tremendous amount of help from Russia and from Iran, and that seems to have been a difference maker on the ground here. Uh, Rebel defenses, we refer to the anti-Assad, non-ISIS resistance, or at least in many of the sort of journalist accounts of this, they're referred to as rebels. Uh, They are falling away, and there's been flight from the eastern part of the city of Aleppo because people know the Assad regime is coming, and there will be reprisals, and this is uh, going to just continue to be a grinding uh, bloodbath. The Syrian government and Russia have both rejected a ceasefire for Aleppo, and uh, they've kept up this offensive. So uh, Aleppo looks like it's falling to the regime. This is quite a turnaround. I remember a few years ago, it was considered likely 
it was considered likely that the Assad regime would be more or less pushed up against a coast uh, and there would be a rebel control of most of the country um, and that maybe the Assad regime would, would crumble and fall, actually. Uh, maybe the Assad regime would no longer be in in place at all. Uh, there were a couple of very uh, really audacious suicide bombing attempts on senior Assad leadership, I mean, senior uh, Alawite leadership of the Assad regime. And this was earlier on. It, it seemed like Assad, that his days were numbered. It seemed that he was going to be gone. And now, of course, much of what had been the rebels has been co-opted or overtaken by either ISIS, uh, which is or, or Jabhat al-Nusra, which is the official al-Qaeda franchise there. You have over a half a million dead. It's hard to see how the international community could in any way um, view its role in Syria positively. I don't know how much worse it could really be. There has been the usage of chemical weapons. Remember, there was a victory lap by the Obama administration specifically on the issue of chemical weapons because Assad promised or agreed to get rid of them. Chemical weapons have been used dozens of times. We don't pay attention to it. The destruction of civilian areas has gone on uh, largely unabated. And what we have is a civil war that is just churning through casualties has spilled over into Europe, massive refugee problem for the region, for countries like Turkey and Jordan, but also a million refugees to Germany alone, uh, terrorist attacks in places like uh, the Bataclan Theater in Paris and elsewhere, uh, directly tied to either the refugee flow or the rise of ISIS in the Syrian civil war, as well as many lone wolves here. I mean, it is a legacy of disaster and failure, I don't think you got any sense of that yesterday from President Obama when he was talking about it, but it's still um, the, the, it's still playing out right now, and the reality of it is that it is things are quite bad. Uh, Aleppo is falling to Syrian government forces. Looks like Assad will regain control of a majority of the country, and now we're faced with the choice that we never wanted to have, which is Assad or ISIS, and in that situation the international community whether it wants to admit that or not goes with Assad and that will mean that this dictator who was willing to use jihadists in the past and allowed the rat lines of suicide bombers to go not just unimpeded but assisted into Iraq to blow up U.S. troops and to cause massive problems for us there um, that this dictator will be able to continue on in power in large part because of Russian intervention and the Iranians coming to his aid. Um, so that's that's the situation right now. That's a sort of broad stroke of what's happening in Syria. Um, the anti-Assad resistance is as weak as it seems to have ever, have ever been. Uh, ISIS is still in control of Raqqa, obviously, in eastern parts of the country. But the Assad regime is... Not going anywhere. And Russia and Iran have achieved what they view as an important foreign policy and national security objective by propping up the Alawite dictator of Damascus. All right. That's on that side of the equation. Then we also have what's going on in Mosul, um, where we are directly involved. We have U.S. 
troops that are advising and assisting on the front lines of that conflict. And that has largely stalled out. There is a serious delay right now in trying to push deeper into the city, in large part because the resistance that we or that rather the Iraqi forces that are in the lead have uh, have come up against is fierce. There has there has been the deployment of hundreds, hundreds of suicide car bombs against the uh, Iraqi units that are deployed inside the city. Mosul, as I've told you, is bisected by the Tigris River. There's the sort of western part of the city and the eastern part of the city. The eastern part has always had more sort of Kurdish control and and, uh, more of a Kurdish influence and population. The western part is just Sunni Arab, uh, predominantly Sunni Arab. And that's also where the mosque that Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi announced his caliphate if you recall, when they seized, when the Islamic State seized Mosul a couple of years ago, uh, that mosque is on the western, in the western portion of the city. So the plan, the the plan for retaking Mosul involves about a hundred thousand security forces. I mean, it's a it's a massive, uh, a, a massive coalition of units that include militia, Shia militia, that include Kurdish Peshmerga which are really the sort of standing army of Kurdistan, although we refer to them as militia, I guess, as a sort of concession to the Iraqi government, not to make them feel like there's another military that is operating in their backyard. Formal military, that is. And you have these Iraqi units, including the counterterrorism service, the CTS, which has been used as the tip of the spear. But if you use the tip of the spear continuously, and they don't have any, any respite from a very high operational tempo, it can be blunted. And they look like right now they're just running up against incredibly uh, both resilient and determined ISIS fighters who seek to hold the city. So you have this force of 100,000. And this is also very interesting. They've decided they decided in the, in the uh, battle plan to encircle the city instead of leaving a corridor to the west. If they left a corridor to the west, you might have had of the four or 5,000 ISIS fighters who are dug in, who have built tunnels underground, who obviously have fixed fighting positions all over the city, who have been storing weapons and uh, are using are hiding behind civilians as human shields, uh, which also means that there's a lack of heavy weaponry. And, and Mosul is... Uh, especially the, the the deeper into the city you get, it's just a maze of narrow streets and alleyways. It's perfect for ambushes. In fact, armor can't even necessarily get into some parts of the city because the streets are so narrow, the buildings are so close together. And the Iraqis are relying primarily on up-armored Humvees given to them by Uncle Sam, uh, paid for by you and me, as their that's sort of their their main armor component. They do have some tanks and, and armored personnel carriers, but they're they're mostly using Humvees. So they've run up against this resistance. The fighters that are there, the call it five thousand maybe total ISIS fighters, including a lot of foreign fighters who have sworn to die in place. Um, they don't have a corridor of escape, so they can't go back across the Syrian border. And there's reporting, and in fact, it's in Reuters today that the Iranian militias were the ones who insisted on closing off that escape route. You know, this is a this has a major implications for the course of this battle for what is Iraq's second largest city, maybe third after Basra now, depending on how many people have fled. There's been 70 to 80,000 uh, internally displaced uh, 
Iraqis who have fled Mosul so far. There could be 100,000, 200,000, who knows? But there could be hundreds of thousands more that are uh, fleeing, and it's winter there. There's shortages of food and medicine, and they're going to be living in tent cities set up by UN and other relief agencies in the you know in the region. Uh, but the battlefield is such that they can't move much more quickly into the city center because they're coming up against all of this, all these dug in fighters, U.S. Uh, airstrikes, which have been helpful, become less helpful the more you go into sort of the dense center of Mosul uh, because you don't want civilian casualties. And so they're less uh, apt and, and less uh, accepting of calling in, you know, an airstrike and. That just means that everything is getting harder. Everything is getting more difficult the, the, the deeper into the city they go. This has already been happening for seven weeks. Uh, they've, as I said, sealed off the city in terms of escape. And they also didn't want to allow large refugee outflows initially because they figured that ISIS fighters, and I'm sure this was accurate, would use the escape routes of civilians to try to smuggle out their own fighters. So instead, what you have is the city really sealed off. And you have this massive force, this multi-sectarian, which in the Iraqi context is not necessarily a good thing. This multi-sectarian force has sealed off the city and they are just moving in street to street, house to house, trying to clean out these 5,000 fighters. I mean, this is going to go on certainly for weeks, maybe for months. The furthest estimates I've seen from Iraqi military on the ground um, are that by next summer, they think that Mosul will be pacified. Uh, that doesn't mean that there won't be some lingering insurgen, uh, insurgency here and there. Um, but this city has been under the thumb of the Islamic State for two years. It has allowed the population to become uh, terror, thoroughly terrorized. They've already been suffering. And while they are pleased, based on all the sort of media accounts you can read, that they will be liberated soon from their ISIS captors, they also are concerned that they're is a now officially recognized the Iraqi government passed the Iraqi parliament passed a law that said that the Shia militias that are in place, including some former Shia militia commanders who were part of what would be considered ethnic or sectarian cleansing back in 2007, 8, 9, uh, 2007 and 8, uh, that they officially recognize them. They're now under the umbrella of uh, Haider al-Abadi, the prime minister of Iraq. His government out of Baghdad controls these Shia militias. Uh, but to Sunni Arab residents in Mosul's a Sunni Arab majority city, these Shia militias are really just an appendage of Iran. They are there to do Iran's bidding and they don't trust them. There are already reports of these militias in other places uh, engaged in atrocities, uh, war crimes, you know, killing civilians, reprisal killings, those sorts of things. So you can imagine that there's some sense inside of Mosul that they'll be trading ISIS for Shia oppressors, whether that's true or not, that that certainly is factoring into the mindset there. So this is an incredibly uh, volatile and, and difficult situation. It's very bloody, and it is not something that's going to be resolved anytime soon, although I do think that progress is being made. Uh, this is not getting much attention in this in this country because of a whole bunch of reasons, you got the Trump transition and other things happening. Um, but this is a city that the U.S. had to take from Saddam and then had to retake, at least in different parts and pieces from the insurgency, from the uh, jihadist insurgency of the 
uh, of al-Qaeda in Iraq and other sort of affiliated groups numerous times. And here we are again, U.S. troops deployed, about 5,000 deployed in Iraq, uh, hoping that they can help retake this city, which, I mean, they've been invaluable up to this point, but now the Iraqis are going to have to largely do it on their own. And then after that, that the country doesn't devolve into a civil war because the armed faction, Shia Sunni Kurd, they've gathered up their troops. And once they've no longer got the sort of unifying effect of Mosul, of retaking Mosul from ISIS, it's really anybody's guess how this plays out in terms of other contested areas. Mosul is a contested city. Kurdish and Sunni Arab claims to it. Kirkuk is a contested city. Um, there are other fissures, sort of fractures, other lines of tension in the country that will get worse, most likely, uh, when there's this mobilization that dies down a bit after ISIS is gone. So, yes, ISIS eliminated from from Iraq is a critical step, but there's a lot more in terms of challenges for this country. Let's close out the buck brief there. a secure space. Cell phones may be turned on. Disavow all knowledge of this meeting. Remember to protect sources and methods. Maintain good OPSEC at all times. 888-900-3393. Phone lines open, team. would love to hear from you. It would cheer me up on a gray, dreary day here in New York City. That's where the Freedom Hut is. BT Dubs. Back in a few. Buck Sexton. The Blaze Radio Network. This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Dispensing the truth. This is Buck Sexton. On the Blaze Radio Network. Team, you thinking about getting a firearm or an accessory coming up here for the holiday season? Maybe as a gift for yourself or a loved one? Best place to go is YHM.net. That's Yankee Hill Machine's website. Yankee Hill Machine is a third-generation family-owned company, and they are celebrating their 65th anniversary in business this year. They are a fantastic outfit. Chris and Kevin Graham stay true to their family tradition, and they produce some of the finest rifles and sound suppressors on the market. Chris and Kevin are the owners of Yankee Hill Machine. They're great guys. They love guns. They really support the Second Amendment. They take a lot of pride in what they do. And their continued innovations have made YHM a strong force within the AR-15 and more recently in the sound suppression industry. So for the complete line of YHM products, go to YHM.net, YHM.net. That is Yankee Hill Machine, YHM.net. Dot net. I don't know why I just got all radio, radio voice on you there. Uh, 888-900-3393 is the number on the phone lines. Um, I'm hoping we'll talk about some sort of just random Fun stories today. Oh, here we go. Donald Trump's person time of the uh, people mag wait person of the year from People Magazine or Time Magazine. Sorry, I get these things confused. Time Magazine's uh, person of the year. I guess we can't say man of the year anymore. Is that is that really a thing? We, I mean, if it's a man or a woman, we don't specify. We just say person of the year. I guess that's the case. Um, Donald Trump is man. Of, yeah, uh, Time Magazine gets it right on this one at least. Uh, you got to say Trump is man of the year. Still, um, there's still a part of me that is trying to get used to the uh, 
reality of a Trump presidency and a Trump administration. So we will have to see how this all shakes out. Uh, but so far, I have to say, I think it is exceeding my expectations somewhat. So far, I'd have to say that I think that there is uh, plenty of reason for optimism, at least. Uh, and we'll talk a bit about another check in that column in just a few minutes here. 888-900-3393. Team, we'll be right back. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Team phone lines open 888-900-3393. Got some spots open. Let's chat. It's like one of these days in New York City, you're like, why am I getting out of bed? It's gray. It rained all day yesterday. Blah. It's a blah kind of a day here in New York. So cheer me up. I'm sure it's lovely somewhere else in the country. And if it's not, I'm sure you've got interesting things to say. Josh in California, you're up first. What's up? Hey, Buck. Shield tie. How you doing? Shield I'm all right, man. Good. So I was doing some research uh, about you know how the Civil War started, and uh, basically, I think the I'm not saying that the U.S. is going to go into civil war, or I'm promoting the civil. Wait, you, know, you mean the U.S.? Uh, I was thinking you were talking Syrian civil war. You're talking about the U.S. civil war. Oh, I'm talking about yeah, U.S. civil war. Okay. And how the uh you know the environment of how the civil war in the uh you know with Abraham Lincoln how that all started and basically what's going on in the US today can really relate to how that civil war started and basically what the war was fought over we we all know was slavery and money basically the the south wanted to have the cheap labor from the slaves i don't think it was more about slavery as much as it was know so much about belittling belittling the african-americans but that easy money and not having to pay people to do the farm work that they were having them wait, wait, wait i'm sorry go, go back what are you saying well what i'm basically saying is the, the reason the civil war was fought was well what over. is this i'm just wondering josh what does this have to do with anything out of curiosity i mean is this just like this is a curiosity oh, you have okay. today so, no no sorry okay so what it has to do with is um Wait, 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 why, why was the Civil War fought, on your estimation? Before we, And then you can tell me why we're talking about this, but what were you saying before that? Okay, so the reason the Civil War was fought was over slavery. And, yeah, okay, yes, right. That, I mean, it was over slavery, okay. so... Yeah, and, and power between, you know, disputes between the Republicans and the Democrats, you know, North and South, basically. Okay, and, yeah. Um, and so today's political environment kind of relates to how the Civil War started in that when uh, Lincoln was elected, other states had said that they would secede if Lincoln was to get elected. Same thing that's happening today. Uh, You know, they said Donald Trump is getting elected. We're going to secede from the union, or at least they're trying to, especially, you know, I live in California, so I'm... I mean, are you, are you really watching. comparing this, the uh, state of the U.S., right, with, with when slavery was an active institution and to, to right now with Donald Trump in terms... Really? No, no, you no, were, no. You think, I, you think I, there's going to be a... You think there's going to be, like, a war or something? Because I can tell... There's not. Well, no, I, I think we're not as primitive as we were in the 1800s, and I think we're beyond that. 
but a lot of the things that happened that caused the civil war are really happening right now. And again, we're, we're way past that as, you know, as a society, we're past, you know, bringing a war to our own country. We have way too much. Okay. So you're saying there's some, there's some general similarities. I mean, basically you're saying there was a divided country politically before the civil war and we're a divided country now. And that's what you're saying. Yeah. And, and I hope, what I'm trying to say is, you know, I hope that America really realizes how good we really have it because we're so sheltered and it's almost the media's fault because they make it seem like America's so bad. But if they would really show what's really happening in like Aleppo and the civil wars that are actually happening, where countries really are truly divided to the point where they're killing each other, I think people would really start to appreciate what we have in america all right josh thank you for the call from california uh okay yeah i mean look historical analogies are uh and by the way i do want you to call in don't i just i wasn't really sure where josh was going there and wasn't really clear on what the relevance to anything was um but historical analogies <laughs> First of all, of course, they're always different because you're talking about different periods in time, right? There's there's always going to be uh, things that don't line up, so you automatically can assume that. But even beyond the historical analogy or beyond the built-in problems of a historical analogy, I think it's also important to keep in mind, yeah, perspective is necessary. Context is necessary. Uh, I do not see us in a uh, – I do not see this the, the Trump administration leading to anything – terrible i don't like the hearing that the trump administration is going to be fascism and i also don't think that we should start to worry and josh didn't say this i'm not saying he did but that we're going to be in some sort of a an armed there'll be some sort of an armed uprising against the trump administration i mean that's that's just not going to happen so it's not constructive to spend uh, much of our time on it uh at all so there's that. Um, I want to talk about something that like is is happy. What do we have that's happy? There was the, what kind of a dog was it? The I know this is a total switch, uh, total switcher switcheroo here. Uh, meet Patton the Golden Doodle. Will he become Trump's first dog? Uh, the Trump family doesn't have any any animals, um, but there's Lois Pope, who's a prominent philanthropist in Palm Beach, Florida said in an interview that she is in possession of a nine-week-old golden retriever and poodle mix that will soon become the first dog. Um, she knows Trump well. She's known him for two decades. So it looks like they may... Why? Look, I love, I love all dogs. Not a golden doodle person. I know. Some of you probably think that that's, that's crazy. They're so cute or whatever. And I know they're hypoallergenic or something like that, so that's why people like them, because if you have an, aller- if you have a, an allergy to dogs... Um, but still, I, of, of the options you can get, you know what it really is? I'm kind of anti-poodle. Don't like poodles. And, I, and I'm sorry if you're a big poodle person, if you're a poodle breeder listening to the show, apologies for me offending you, but I'm just, poodles are very low on my list. I take Chihuahua before I go poodle. Yeah, I know. Um, but it looks like there might be a golden doodle at the white house. Isn't is it a Portuguese water dog? The Obamas have right now, or do they have golden doodle? Do they have golden doodles. I can't remember uh, bow and something or other are the first dogs. Again, why, why can't we get like a yellow lap golden retriever? You know, this is America. Uh, that's my thought on that. 888-900-3393. I'll be right back with much more news in a few. This is the Buck Sexton show. 
on the Blaze Radio Network. Listening to the Buck Sexton Show only on the Blaze Radio Network. All right, team. Said I'd love to hear from you, and I mean it. Chris in North Carolina, what's up? What's happening in the Freedom Hut today? You know, man, it's all right. It's kind of a gloomy day at <laughs> NYC, but I can tell you're you're going to cheer me up with either some brilliant analysis or some witty repartee. <laughs> I'm gonna. Tr- I know. I really, I really have a question. Actually, I wanted to see what you thought about. I thought it was kind of strange that. Time Magazine made Trump the, the person of the year just simply because, you know, it's, it, Time Magazine is, is, is mainstream, and um, the mainstream these days tends to just, you know, be completely left. So is why, why do you think that they nominated him? It seems, it seems like a, a weird move. Um, wh- wait, why, why did they nominate Trump? What do you mean? Yeah, because 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 time is you know time is, is so mainstream and the mainstream media is like they're always just so left, and then to come out and do that it just seemed a little bit bizarre to me. It seems like maybe they they would have nominated somebody like, well, Beyonce. Uh, look, I I I think that even for a left leaning magazine, I mean, look, Donald Trump is so clearly far and away the most uh, impactful figure of the last 12 months i mean he's going to become the most powerful person in the world and he has complete i mean he was it was just a phenomenon the whole thing whether you you know love it or hate it it it, it was what it was and i think that that's i think that's pretty clear I, i don't think there's really much debate or discussion about all of that so you know, uh, we'll have to sort of see. Um, we'll have to sort of see how it all shakes out. I, I just think that it's an obvious choice, even for a left-wing magazine. I mean, this was the year, 2016 was the year of the Trump, for sure. No no way around it. You know what I mean? You're right. You're absolutely yeah. right. Yeah, I just I mean, I, you know, I, I, look, uh, there was, I, I even, I think I even made uh, a little made a little joke about somebody who was uh, some media person who said they should give time person of the year to Hillary and it's like, really? You're going to go that route? Well, see, I, mean, gonna... I, wouldn't, I, wouldn't have, I wouldn't have been surprised if that would have, you know, if that would have happened. Honestly. Uh, um, yeah, I'd be a little much. Uh, I think Trump is far and away the obvious choice, and that's why they went with it. But, but I mean, look, I, I hear you in that they probably didn't want to do it. but they. And then again, also, you know, who cares about Time Magazine? It's probably a better, a better point to make here. Who cares what Time Magazine thinks about much of anything? At this point, it's... Touche, touche. You know I mean? 50 years ago, maybe Time Magazine. Oh, ooh, but now I don't think anyone cares. Den- uh, Shield tie, Chris. Thank you for calling, man. Uh, good to talk to you. Denise in Oklahoma, you're on the Buck Sexton Show. Welcome. Hey, Buck. It's great to talk to you again. Um, I wanted to first say to all the listeners that got to listen to the Battle of Lepanto. Thank you. That you did. I... Li- I listened to it about three days ago for the 12th time at least. Oh, that's very kind of you. Thank you. Well, and I shared it on my Facebook because all this in the Middle East, it made me kind of look at things a little differently. And with the Iranian control now moving into Iraq and Assyria, is it possible, worst case scenario, that the capitulation of the Obama 
deal with Iran, which is basically what we did, uh, could it now be that the Iranians, instead of ISIS, moved through that area and formed their own caliphate, being a nuclear caliphate? This is quite a question. Well, it just, like I said, listening to the Battle of Lepanto made me look at things so totally different. Yeah, I, first of all, I, I think it's uh, worth pointing out that the Iranians view themselves, and, and this is not a sort of crazy mullahs running the country uh, post-1979 revolution thing. I mean, the Iranians view themselves as the inheritors and now the custodians of a, of a great and an ancient civilization. So there, there is a sense that they, and and this is like I said, this isn't uh, a function of uh, of the mullahcracy or anything like that. This is just Iranian perception, Persian perception. If you talk to people in this country, sometimes people refer to Iranians. Uh, Iranians in this country refer to themselves as Persians, but they do have a, uh, a pride of being from an, an ancient civilization, and they definitely have aspirations to be the Mid East's uh, hegemon. And they're really butting up against Saudi Arabia right now. You know, there there hasn't they they don't sort of speak in the same terms of uh, of exporting a, a caliphate as Sunni jihadists do, or not exporting, I should say, building a caliphate as Sunni jihadists do. Um, but there are similarities, and I think the Iranians do have uh, in their minds that they can more or less control Iraq, uh, which by population is is more than half Shia Muslim. And there are a few other mm-hmm. pockets of Shia across the Middle East that they can sort of use as outposts of their empire. And if they are all under a nuclear umbrella, then all of a sudden Iran does become a, a true regional power. And that's certainly what it aspires to. Global power? I don't know. I mean, because Shia Muslims are only about 20-ish, 15, I think, 15 to 20% of the global Muslim population, something like that. Um, so... Denise, it's something they're thinking about for sure, but uh, they're a long ways away from that. But they're, if they get nukes, which I think they believe they will in about 10 years, um, they are very likely, in my opinion, uh, to be much more aggressive than we've even seen them up to this point. And, and they're pretty aggressive already. You know what I mean? Right. So we'll see. Uh, uh, we'll see. Well, um, I would like to wish you a very Merry Christmas if I don't get to speak to you again before then. Oh, God, I certainly and, hope you'll listen again before then. But, yeah, if we don't get to just Oh, I listen every day, Buck. I oh, listen thank you every so much. day. So, and I recommend you highly to all my friends that that the information that I get from you, it, it, it helps to understand what's going on in the Middle East. And I love the Buck Brief. I thank really you so love much. That. Thank you, Denise. Thank you for cheering me up on a day when I can use it. I appreciate that. Denise in Oklahoma, Shields High. Thank you very much. Um, there, there were, I mean, there were, um, Shia caliphates, by the way, I, I think that's worth noting. I mean, there was the Fatimid caliphate, which is like 11th, 12th century, mostly 10th, 11th, 12th century. Uh, so there, there, there have been Shia caliphates. I, I wanted to be clear about that. It's not like they're, the caliphate is a foreign concept to the Shia. Um, but yeah, uh, that's, we'll have to see what the Iranian, I haven't had a real Iran. I'd like to get somebody on who will sort of maybe speak a bit more to the long-term vision of the 
Iranian regime, uh, such as it stands right now, I think that would be an interesting discussion to have, especially going into a, a new administration, a Trump administration that I think will be much less pliable than what the Iranians have become used to over eight years of Obama. Uh, that's probably a, a fair way to put it. Um, so we shall see. That's definitely uh, put that one in the hopper, too. Um, 888-900-3393 if you want to talk on the phone lines. We'll get into some uh, interesting stories in the next hour, some some random stories, news stories here and there. I meant to uh, mention, and I don't know if we'll have time to really go back to this, but um, Trump has made a another announcement about a, a major pick. John Kelly, a retired Marine general, is Trump's pick to lead Homeland Security. Uh, another very strong choice. I think this has to go in the column of uh, decisions that Trump has made that uh, are impressing people and uh, and that some of the people that have been most uh, openly doubting Trump uh, look at would look at this and say, OK, well, th- this is a legitimate choice. This is a legitimate option. Uh, and in fact, a a laudable one, I think. Um, so maybe we'll talk more about uh, General Kelly. Uh, but we got a lot planned for the next hour and the third hour. Obviously, we'll talk a bit about Pearl Harbor, Pearl Harbor Day. Got much more to discuss, team. Back in a few minutes. You're listening to Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network.